10 years ago, I was hit by a car in a Chick-fil-A parking lot. Mm. And at the time of it, I, I wasn't in the car when I was hit. I was just walking in the crosswalk. And a lady was talking on the cell phone, her cell phone, and I, carrying a platter of Chick-fil-A nuggets out to the car because we were hosting a couple for, they had an, having an engagement party. They didn't have family in Atlanta. We wanted to give them some TLC. So I'm walking out carrying my Chick-fil-A platter, and I go, wow, that engine is way too revved up for a parking lot. And I look up, and this lady's driving, a, thankfully, an older Toyota or a Honda that had a steeply sloping front end. So she caught me just beneath my knees, picked me up. I went over the top and landed on all fours. And she went by. And, of course, you're right in front of the big picture window, so everybody in the restaurant comes out and looks at you. And I'm on all fours. I'm going, I'm okay. I'm okay. Nothing is broken. I had no blood. It was amazing. My wrists were a little stiff because I put my hands out to grab the front of the car. But anyway, I put my hands out. And she comes out of the car talking on her cell phone, are you okay? <laughs> and I said, I think I am. She said, good. And she went back to got in her car and drove off like, hit a guy every day. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she said, well, she did say one thing. She said, I didn't see you till you went past my window. And I said, well, that's because I'm so petite, I guess. You just missed me here at the crosswalk. <laughs> And what brought that to mind was Alan was trying to lead the service here, and I thought I would come while the first hymn, while you guys stand up and I could kind of walk down, you wouldn't see me, but my timing was very poor, so I'm just walking down here, and Alan, I think, was going to give an invitation there for a minute. He just saw me walking down, and uh, (laughs) here I was, so I apologize for interrupting your train of thought, and I didn't mean to do that. It's hard for someone like me to sneak in anywhere. Barbara... Miller grew up in Philadelphia. Her father was a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He taught evangelism and missions. She was a straight-A student, number one in her class, was baptized as an infant, but in many Baptist churches they would have baptized her as a five- or six-year-old. She got A's in all of her catechism classes at church. She turned 18, and she goes, Mama, Dad, I'll see you. I don't want any part of Christianity or you. And she went out into the world and into the world. And she uh, moved in with a guy she liked to do drugs with and who was also drunk, but that only lasted a while because she eventually moved in with the drug dealer because that was a better party. And she jumped from situation to situation. You can actually watch her testimony. She's a woman about 50 years old now. It's on Vimeo, I think, on YouTube. Barbara Miller Giuliani is now her last name. She's talking what it was like to be lost without God and in the world at the age of 18. And she said, nothing that I did bothered me. My conscience was fine. She said, finally, after a few years of living like this, she goes, you know, I spent a lot of time in school studying, and I can do better than this. I think I'll go to college. So as smart as she was, she applied to, to, to Stanford and got a full ride to go to Stanford despite her debauched lifestyle. Went to Stanford. Meanwhile, her parents, you know, you're praying for your daughter who's in the far country. She's living a hellish life. Maybe she's turning over a new leaf. Maybe something good is happening here. So her dad was involved in the East African revivals in Uganda. would fly there every summer and spend a good chunk of the summer in Uganda. And he stopped at the Newark airport and called her in the San Francisco Bay Area in Palo Alto and said, I'm going over to Uganda. There's civil war right now. Idi Amin has been overthrown. We don't know what's going to happen. For the first time in my life, I don't feel good about something. I don't know if I'll come back. But I didn't want to take you to heaven. It's just a memory. And she said, you got to understand my family. My parents were calm people. My older brother's a calm person. I'm a yeller. So I, she started yelling at him on the phone. He goes, I know you can't make yourself a Christian. I'm not asking you to. I'm just asking you to do one thing. If God is real, would you ask him to show himself to you? Could you do that? I'm not asking you a lot. Just if he's real. She goes, okay. If, if he's, I'll ask him if he's real to show himself to me. And they ended the, court, the conversation quickly, and he went to Uganda. He survived the trip and came home. And she did. She said, I, I prayed that prayer, but God did not show himself to me. She said what he did was he showed me to me. And I began to see 
all the corruption and evil that was in my life. She said, I moved out to California, and I needed a job, so there was a job open at a bar, and so I was a barmaid. And I moved in with the bar owner, and I was living just like I lived on the East Coast, only I was on the West Coast. And jumping from relationship to relationship, and she's discreet in how she just watches this. You could watch it with your teenagers at home. But she said, I began to see what the Bible calls my depravity. She said, I got A's on all the tests. I listened to church all those years. I never once felt like a sinner. I knew the Bible said I was a sinner, but I never felt like a sinner. Never felt conviction, never felt condemnation, but I knew the answers. She said, suddenly, all I could see was my guilt. And it came to a head one day when she was walking across campus, saw some of her friends, just went over to talk to them, just hang out with a couple of buds for a few minutes. And she said, all I could do was give them some zingers and have put-downs and sarcastic remarks. And when we broke up, I started walking away, and I started sobbing. She said, I couldn't even be with my friends for five minutes without being ugly and sinful against them. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he was, and he saved her. And to listen to her, there's an eight-minute and a 12-minute version on Vimeo, I think, and YouTube, but she talks about the fact that she never felt like a sinner, and then she finally saw that she was a sinner. And where do you flee if you're a sinner? If Christ doesn't receive me, I'm undone. Well, I experienced not the same kind of testimony, but the testimony in that I was saved by the grace of God after seeing my lostness for a period of time. And I began to witness to my fraternity brothers and people in college because the greatest thing in the world had happened to me. I was forgiven of my sins. I'm a child of God. God is my Father. And we're on our way to eternity. We're in eternity on our way to eternity. And some of my, some of my fraternity brothers listened and were saved. Others turned away. And I was thought it a great privilege when I found out that, you know, my, my priest of my particular Anglican denomination thought that I'd gone through some kind of weird thing, and he told me he hoped that I got over it. I go, oh, you get over it. And, and it's like... Uh, <laughs> He says, I've seen this happen to people before, and it's not good for them. And then he left the ministry a few months later to become a stockbroker, which isn't evil, but when you leave the ministry because you want to make money, that's not a good sign. So when I found out that there were people who would pay you to have Bible studies and witness to people, I go, really? I could do this for a living? Because, you know, my great fear prior to graduation would be I would graduate. And while it's cool and noble to search for truth while you're in college, you know, when you're 30, it doesn't look very good, and you need to get a job and do something with your life, and I had no clue what I was going to do with my life. But when I was saved by the grace of God, all I wanted to do was tell people about the grace of God. God really did visit this planet. There really is salvation from sin. There really is new life. And I was experiencing it, and it was, it was beyond my capacity to even explain what was happening in my life. And so I went on staff with the parachurch ministry for seven years, uh, Fred and I are very close. We're born in the same month, a couple of days apart. We're saved through the same ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. He went to seminary. I went on crusade staff when we graduated in 1970. Met years later, compared notes, and found out that we had a lot in common. And in parachurch ministry, I did what I did because people were lost, because they needed Christ, because God is glorified when sinners come to Christ. The angels rejoice. There are a lot of good reasons out of the overflow of my own life. But as I read my Bible more and more over the next few years, I realized that I had made some serious errors along the way. The parachurch wasn't God's first and best thing. It was an invention of man in the last couple hundred years, but the church was the apple of God's eye, and I needed to be in the church, and I needed to be providing and using my gifts to the church, and I shouldn't be just standing off and talking about ourselves as the Greenbrae Christians while the people in the local churches were just... So many cattle in a corral, and we were the ones out doing the uh, Navy SEAL kind of stuff for the kingdom. And you go, do people really think that? No, they would never say it in public, but yes, they do think that, that people who are in the local pews are just kind of doofuses while the guys out there on campus or in the military are doing things are like what you tend to, if you saw a guy and he was in the Navy SEALs, would you view him as more important than a guy who was a PFC in the Army? You probably view the Navy SEALs, the more macho guy, and the Army guy is just kind of a, what do you drive with a motor pool? Um, and uh, 
So I, I had to repent of my attitude toward the church. I had to repent of my attitude toward myself, my pride, my despising what God said in Scripture was important. Seeing the local church, uh, there's Ten Commandments, not nine. What do I have about the Lord's Day? Um, what was the calling to be a minister? I came to the Doctrines of Grace in 1976, and, and later in that year, uh, 19, early seven, 1977, I was called by God under the gospel ministry. I didn't think I was ready quite yet. I thought I needed to go to seminary and get some more training. Got some more training in, in working with adults in the local church and discipling men, and then I went to seminary. My local church said, if you'll go to seminary, we'll pay your tuition because we'd like you to be the assistant pastor. When you get out of school, we see your gifts and graces, and we want you to be our assistant pastor when you get out. And I go, yes. I wondered how I was going to pay for that. So came back from seminary and was the assistant pastor. And I had so many things to, to, re, to relearn. When you come to the doctrines of grace, that's not the end of the journey. That's the beginning of a journey. And all these permutations and combinations, all these possibilities open up to you. The topic I'm privileged to speak on tonight, the local sending church and the missionary, is, I think, very important because we're all so confused. Um, you've, if you've been in this church a number of years, you've had excellent training, and you think more clearly. To be biblical is to think God's thoughts after him. And some of our thoughts are scrambled. Some of our thoughts are cultural. and Some of our thoughts are just plain out unworthy of him, and we have to renew our minds and so I hope for most of us tonight, this will be a review, but some of you may be some new things. What should be the relationship between a person who is called by God and is recognized by his local church to be a missionary, church planner, and what should be the relationship of the church to that person? We're going to look through the book of Luke's, excuse me, the book, Luke's book of Acts. I hope you have your finger in the book of Acts because we're going to go through it. Put on your seatbelt. It's going to fly. In the book of Acts, we have the record of how we get from Christ's death and resurrection to where, where in the world is this Romans coming from? How could you go from John's gospel to Romans and have any clue as to how Paul was and what's going on? You need the book of Acts. Now, I can remember as a young Christian at 21 years old reading the book of Acts going, this is like a Christian travelogue. I go, no, it's not like a Christian travelogue. And I've read it many times over the years and studied it, and it's a profound book on church planting, Christ extending his kingdom, the fulfillment of his covenant, a lot of things. I'm going to try to show you three things this evening. First of all, we're going to look at three things about the church planters themselves, three things about the church planters, then seven things about the sending church, and then four general principles to, to work on. First of all, three things about the missionary church planter. Let's read in Acts chapter 14, a key passage. The more I read Acts, the more I love it and the more I see in it. Acts 14, beginning in verse 24. Paul and Barnabas is the, the they, verse 24. Then they, Paul and Barnabas, passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They've already been out on one missionary journey. If you were in here to listen to John Miller earlier, we see in Acts 13 that God sets aside several men to be sent out from the church of Antioch to do the work of the ministry. And two of them together, Barnabas and Saul, are sent out as a team. Well, they've had a missionary journey, and they're returning home, and they're reporting on what happened. It wasn't just they were sent to outer Slobovia, and they're, they're going to report back, really, on what happened among the Slobs. Because people who live in outer Slobovia are Slobs. You didn't know that? I'm sorry. That's all the humor you're going to get tonight. So, <laughs> And when they arrived and gathered their church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. First of all, we're reminded of commendation. They had been commended by the church to the grace of God. We can't go with our brother and sister and family to Australia. But God's gone ahead of them. This is part of the eternal counsels of God. We commend them to God's grace. We trust that God will take care of you. And, you know, you think you're in control. And parents say, well, you're in control until your 16-year-old drives down the driveway with the car. And you go, oh, but we're not in control ever. Can you... Keep your children from getting sick? 
from getting terrible diseases? Can we, can, we have, can we stop any accident from happening? No, we don't have really control. We kind of think we do, but when you send someone off to the other part of the world, we, are, we commend them to the grace of God. And that's what they did. They were commended to the grace of God and they sent them out. They didn't, they didn't send themselves. They weren't Christian entrepreneurs like everybody I met. Hey, I think I'm called to be a missionary working with students. You want to support me? Well, who, who, set, their, uh, who set their approval upon you? Who's sending you out? Uh, well, I'm just a great guy and you would want to support me. And that's a lot of what happens and passes for Christianity in America today. They didn't send themselves, and they couldn't sustain themselves. I mean, this church was going to pray for them. This church was going to hold them up. This church was going to send money when it could. Imagine how difficult it was to find somebody in the ancient world when there's no electronic devices. Gee, I hope I bump into them in a market in some city someplace when we're out looking for them. But this church was going to have their back, and this church was sending them. But there's also accountability. These people were commended, but it also says they were accountable. They had been given work to do, and how's it phrase it? For the work that they had fulfilled. The idea is if you can recognize that it's been fulfilled, there must have been some kind of job description, something they were sent to do. They didn't just kind of float around the first century world as the Spirit leads in some kind of undisciplined, semi-charismatic way. They had a certain commission, a certain job to do, and now they were reporting back on how they had fulfilled that job description. And finally, and I think this is something that I still haven't fully grasped, and maybe you can help me with it. It says in my notes, there is ongoing communion with the saints of the local church. That last verse, they remained no little time with the disciples. You know, frequently when missionaries return home on furlough, they may be home on furlough for three months, but half of that they're visiting other places, and then half of that they might be with you, and you see them a little bit at church, and that's it. But these people were involved in the life of the church for some time before they went back to the field. They've been gone, I don't know what the, the chronology is now, but probably over a year, two years, and had come back, and they just became part of the congregation again and part of the lives of these people. They had been gifted men who had been active in the church before who were then sent out, but then they come back, and they're with the people again. We get to see their gifts and graces. They can minister to us. Um, I'd like some of you who are smarter than I to give some thought to what's really going on there and why that was something that was desirable and why Luke bothers to report it, the ongoing communion with the saints of their sending church. But these were men who knew they were sent out and commended by a church. They were accountable to fulfill job description. And there was some sense in which they felt they felt that they should be a part. I'm a professional speaker. Um, they felt the importance of being in this local congregation. But Acts also, I think, reveals seven things about sending churches that we need to see in the rest of the book of Acts. First thing about sending churches is this. If I'm to be a sending church, to have a sending church, I need to have an outward-looking sending mentality where we're willing to send our best men to go and evangelize and make disciples and plant churches. If I have a hoarder's mentality or the mentality that, well, you can have some of the fringe people who show up once a month, but you can't have our best men, well, God's not going to use that or bless that. But certainly I know this church is beloved to Alan and Alan to the church, and you consider him a gifted man. You've um, installed him as your assistant pastor, and he would be considered one of your best men. That's the mentality of ascending church. We're not hoarding him. We're not saying, well, we need help in Louisiana. We're not going to send him to the whole world over there. We need help in Louisiana. Well, hey, Atlanta needs help where I'm from. Every place in the States needs help. But there's some places that needs help far worse than our people. Most of the people you know are gospel-hardened. They're not gospel ignorant. In much of the world, people are just gospel ignorant. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They've been told that the Holy Spirit was going to give them power, and that they were, when the Spirit came upon them, they were to send these men out as witnesses. Now, uh, missions-minded people have noted there's four things there. Jerusalem, people who are geographically close and culturally similar or identical. In other words, if you were doing evangelism in this county or in a 50-mile radius, 
you know this part of Louisiana, you know what people are like, you know the different subgroups and religions, and you would know how to talk to them and relate to them. Okay, then it says, after Jerusalem, Judea. That's maybe a bigger area. Maybe the state of Louisiana, or as most people say that Louisiana is divided into those who live north of this interstate and those who live south of this interstate. But uh, that's a geographic area nearby, still culturally familiar, but a farther away geographically. Then he says, Samaria, those people aren't like us. You know, uh, if you ask Earl, when Earl moved to California from, from uh, Western Carolina and the mountains, and L.A. is different than the Carolina mountains, and mountain folk are different from L.A. people, and, and uh, you have to learn, you have to be able to adjust if you're going to be with people who are geographically farther away and culturally farther away and try to find things in common things that you can relate to people. And finally, the uttermost parts of the world. That would be some of the places in Georgia that you haven't been to that are very isolated. But by the time you get to Acts 13, as John showed us this afternoon, we have the church in Antioch, a church where they're first called Christians, a church that gets the vision, hey, we need to send men out to preach the gospel. And they do. Acts 13, 1 to 3. And again, they're not just marginal members of the church, but they're pillars of the church. It's not just, shall we send out Alan, but what if the Spirit of God worked at one of your prayer meetings and there's a sense among the leadership, well, we need Fred to go and we need Alan to go and we need uh, Mitch to go and some of the other guys are going to have to step up. Well, that wouldn't be right. I mean, they're our best people. We can't afford to lose our best people. I have no idea what the Spirit of God's going to do. But they were willing to send out several men named. I didn't name them. Besides Barnabas and Saul, there's several other men named. They're sending out some quality guys. When you think of our Lord in you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. A mark of having the heart of God is having a giving heart. If I'm a miserly, stingy person, I don't understand the love of Christ. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 8. Well, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor. And you ought to become the same way. Romans 8.32, one of my favorite verses. Paul's trying to reason with these people going through suffering. He says this. He who didn't spare his own son. What does it mean to spare something? If a gunman, God forbid, should come in the back of the room with a machine gun and say, I'm going to kill all the whatevers in this room. And I'm going to leave it up to the elders to make a choice. Who's going to die? They're not going to want to do that. And the elders say, well, you can have all these people, but we want you to spare these people. How could you ever make that decision? And if it came up to you, which of our, your children, would, God forbid, would you want us to kill? Well, I don't want you to take any of my children. He who did not spare even his own son, the most valuable thing in heaven, he loved his son since eternity past. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up with us all. And Paul says, think with me now. If he would give Christ to you when you only deserve hell, how shall he not also now freely give you all things? The logic is he gave you Christ when you deserved hell. Now that you're adopted Blood-bought child of God, do you think he's going to treat you poorly and give you crummy stuff? No, that's insane. But see, that's the way our God is. God so loved that he gave. God didn't spare even his son. You can have all the seraphim, cherubim, you can have all the angels, but you cannot have my son. Is not the way our God operates. So the sending church is a mark of the very character of God. I'm willing to give my best. We're willing to give our best. Yes, it hurts. Yes, we love these people. Yes, they've been a great benefit and blessing to us. But the world needs them. Second, sending churches recognize the special gifts and graces of the men they send. It's noticed in Acts 13 that these men were acknowledged leaders in the church. They had already been fruitful in their home church and their home culture. They were noted as prophets and teachers. They weren't greenhorns. They weren't novices. It wasn't a case of, well, we think they'll turn out well. We think there's potential there. Maybe that someone else can unlock it. We haven't been able to, but we think they'll make good. 
No, they're acknowledged as already have been men with leadership gifts and spiritual gifts and were effective in their home church. Too many young men have crashed and burned in the mission field or held up the work there while they were growing up themselves. They should have grown up back home in their home church, and you're not sending out a novice or a greenhorn or an untested man. In Acts 16, verses 1 through 5, it's noted that Timothy was not only noted for his family background, his mother and grandmother were uh, Jews and believers, as we find out later, but his father was a Greek, ostensibly unconverted. But he was also noticed that he was a person who was spiritually a healthy man. It says he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. If you look at one of the maps in the back of your New Testament or that you never look at, and you find the travels of Paul, you can say Lystra's here and Iconium's the next church down the road. Well, this man not only had a reputation in his home church, but the closest church that they might fellowship with also knew him and thought, this guy's a great guy. They're lucky to have him over here. So here was a man with a spiritual reputation for a certain amount of maturity already. So sending churches mark out the gifted men among them. And they encourage these gifted men to use their gifts, and hopefully the pastors are doing that. They're encouraging you to use your gifts and abilities, whether it's to write wonderful hymns or whether it's to do gifts of, of, of love and service like Dorcas did and like you have the Dorcas door next door and a whole host of gifts. Those are things that hopefully you're using your gifts And if you have other gifts that might be gifts for ministry that would go beyond the church, hopefully the elders are helping you to identify that and work with that. Taking a plane trip doesn't give you any gifts that you didn't have before you left. You know, I had a guy come to me one time and say, Pastor, I think God wants me to become a preacher. And I was trying to reform a church, and we had elective Sunday schools, and I didn't quite have the authority to say, No, you can't do anything. So I said, Well, okay. Why don't you start off with just teaching a Sunday school class? We'll see how that goes. This guy could talk your leg off, but he was a terrible teacher because as he talked to you, he realized, wait a minute, I don't understand anything you're saying. He kind of talked and double talked. But he wanted to teach a class, so I let him teach a class. And he discovered the first week he had six, the second week he had three, the third week he had one and it wasn't his wife, and the fourth week nobody came, and the fifth week nobody came And you know, if you think you have the gift of teaching, but nobody has the gift of listening to you, you don't have the gift of teaching. But this guy needed to find out. And I said, rather than me play the spoiler and say, no, you can't teach, sit down. I let Mr. Providence teach him that he couldn't teach and he wasn't called. If you don't have the requisite gifts, taking a plane trip isn't going to make it happen. I need to communicate the gospel with power in my home culture and my home church and not thinking I'm going to be automatically fruitful just because I've moved overseas. I need my sending church to confirm my inward subjective call with their objective recognition. Yes, we see that you can speak and communicate that when you've seen fruit from preaching the gospel, you've seen fruit from witnessing. When you teach, people are ministered to. Okay, we see this. That's the way it should be. But if a person doesn't show any of those things, then however painful it is, it's the loving thing to do both for him and where he might be sent, to say, we're sorry, brother, but we just don't see it. It may be there, but we just don't see it. If you want to persevere working at things, that's fine. Third, sending churches sent men who recognized and practiced that they were accountable to that sending church as well as to apostolic command. They sent out men who knew they weren't accountable, who knew that they had to give an account back to the sending church And they were under apostolic command. I read to you from Acts 14 when they came back there to Antioch and they were where they had been commended by the grace of God. They reported what had happened to them and they were giving an accountability to that church. We're under your authority. In Acts 15, in verses 30 through 35, if you want to turn there, I said we're going to look at some verses together. In Acts 15, The Jerusalem Council met to discuss what to do about non-Jews becoming Christians. And do you have to keep the law of Moses? Do you have to be circumcised and keep the kosher kitchen and a lot of other things? And certain decisions were made and certain provisions were made. And these were to be taken back to the local church. Now, it's interesting that I think that 
It says in verse 30 and 31, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered all the congregation together, they delivered the letter. That means the report on what had happened at the meeting, like when your pastors go to a meeting and our national association has to deal with something big. And, you know, they had their Jerusalem council, and we had our difficult last couple of years of General Assembly. They read the letter, and they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The people appreciated that here Paul and Barnabas had come back and reported exactly what happened. It's interesting, too, they didn't prejudice the people against what was said. Well, those stupid guys in Jerusalem don't know anything, and this is what those lunkheads said. No, they faithfully reported what happened, and they were, they were a team players, and they recognized that the apostles, and Paul was an apostle too, but he wasn't an apostle preaching a different gospel, and he was on the same page as these other guys, and they came back and reported, and everybody's happy. In Acts 18, verses 22 through 23, Paul again reports back to Antioch. It says, when they had landed at Caesarea, they went up and greeted the church, and then they went on down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. We've been given a commission. We're faithful to this church, but we're reporting back to this church because we want you to know that we're doing the things you ask us to do. And Besides, how can you pray for us intelligently if you don't know what we're doing? Now, some missionaries ask for prayer in a perfunctory fashion. I want your money, cha-ching, and, oh yeah, prayer backing would be good too. But if they're a real missionary, they'll want you to pray for them first. And money would be great too, but I certainly need your prayers. And here they're reporting on what had happened because these people had been praying for these very ministries New Testament missionaries are not lone rangers or lone wolves. They're not doing their own thing without any input or oversight or care. They're sent men. And again, I think it's important to say they didn't change the ruling of the Jerusalem Council. They didn't smudge out part of it and say, well, these men thought they were doing good, but this part's wrong. They submitted to the Jerusalem Council, and they expected the church at Antioch when they gave the report would too. And they were faithful men, just carrying on their... their, um, Responsibility before the Lord. They're men under authority, and they're under the words of the apostles. They're under the apostles' authority as men who are writing Scripture. We live in a day and time when some missionaries are not faithful to be under authority. Some missionaries like to do their own thing. Some missionaries like to work far away because there's no one really to supervise what they do. I was um, in, in campus work for seven years, and I was 2,000 miles away from headquarters, and only my regional director, who saw me twice a year, really knew what I was up to. And while I would, out, would write weekly report forms in triplicate, what did you do this week that was significant? And I would write the most amazing stuff. I presided at the installation of a bishop, and we had some cardinals, and we did baptism. I would write all the most outlandish things. And nobody ever called me and asked what in the world I was doing. It's like, I could have made up I was ministering to aliens and they wouldn't have uh, said boo. There was no accountability. But I knew guys who liked that. The farther away from headquarters, they didn't have anybody to watch over what they did. Are there people who want people's feedback, who want to be accountable? These men were accountable. Number four, these churches sent out men with both a plan and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. We discussed it this afternoon We're sitting here tonight because of something that happened in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. We don't know how the Holy Spirit forbid them, if the gates were closed, if something happened, but they couldn't go. Okay, we're retracing our steps. We're visiting places we've been to before. We can't go to Phrygia, so let's huddle. What do you guys say? Okay, we'll do this. And while they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Well, we're trying to use our sanctified minds to come up with a good plan, and that didn't work. What does the Lord want us to do? So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Troas is a seaport. From a seaport, you can theoretically go anywhere. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there. Macedonia is a province of what we now call Greece. It's, on, it's now its own country, really. It's across the little bit of water that separates Asian Turkey, Asia Minor, from Europe. 
Heretofore, all the ministry had been among Asian people, Asian Jews, Asian, Asian Gentiles. Paul has a vision one night. I don't want you to, re to go where you're planning to go. I want you to take a ship and go across to the European Gentiles. <gasps> no, not the European Gentiles. They're really debauched. Like most of you are European Gentiles, aren't you? That's right. We were considered worse, more debauched than the Asian Gentiles were. And Paul had to have a vision in the night to go there. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, they were faithfully retracing their steps to the place that they had already visited, but they hadn't visited European Gentiles yet. And God was saying, the kingdom is bigger than your little perspective that you have right now. I want you to go to these people over here. And so 2,000 years later, we're sitting here tonight because Paul did go. European Gentiles could become Christians too. And the gospel's been in Europe for 2,000 years. But it was a combination. They were working a plan. They had already made a missionary journey. They're revisiting places to encourage. Whoops, we can't go here. Whoops, we can't go here. What are we going to do? Well, they weren't rigid. We're going to do this if it kills us. No, then some people can be very rigid. And neither were they flighty, charismatic-like kind of, hey, let's let the Spirit lead, see where we're going to go. But they were sensitive to the fact that the Holy Spirit was overruling their plans. And twice he said no. So when they did get a vision, when they did get a direction of what to do, this is what God wants to do, and we'll do it with all of our heart. Faithful missionaries plan what they want to do, but they also are open to counsel, and they're open to new providence from the Lord. Paul was faithful, but he was never rigid. And so, again, because they were sensitive to a redirection of the Holy Spirit, we're here tonight. And I think that's a significant encouragement. Number five, these churches sent out men to do evangelism, discipleship in order to plant churches. They were not like so many modern evangelists and missionaries shotgunning the masses with the gospel and counting the so-called decisions. These men aimed at making disciples and planting churches. Now, I learned many great things through Campus Crusade. Fred was with Campus Crusade for four years in college. I don't badmouth Campus Crusade. I left when I came to the Doctrines of Grace because in those years, you could not be a Calvinist and be on Campus Crusade staff. It was like you'd become a Jehovah's Witness. It was a bad thing. I learned many good things, and I'm deeply grateful for the good things I learned. But some of the things weren't so good, and I had to set them aside. And um, we were really good at getting decisions, but really bad at getting at making disciples. And then we certainly weren't folding them into local churches like we should have been. The point is, it's not simply how many people can I get to sign a decision card, but is this going to be enduring fruit? Jesus told the twelve, "You didn't. You did not." Thank you. It's like quoting, misquoting John 3.16 in public. I have called and appointed you. You didn't call and appoint yourself. And what's their calling and appointment? That you should go and bear fruit, the kind that will remain. Semicolon. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give to you. You're to pray for enduring fruit. Pray John 15.16 for Alan and Katie. Pray that they would have enduring fruit. Not just decisions, not just temporary believers who fall away, but pray that they would have enduring fruit. I can remember coming across this verse in my devotion after a year of hard work trying to plan a ministry in Indianapolis and recognizing while I was learning to work hard, I wasn't praying biblically. And I began to pray, John 15, 16, in my evangelism. The very next week, the four young men who uh, repented and believed um, went on to become the leaders of my ministry. They're all walking with the Lord today. One was a Presbyterian pastor in Georgia who recently died of cancer. And 40-some years later, the other guys were still walking with the Lord. But it struck me, and I knew when those guys became Christians that week, that God was answering my prayer of John 15, 16. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it was, it was um, I think, labored properly. You know, uh, repetition aids learning. We're to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I have taught you. So we have a ministry of not just evangelizing, 
but making disciples, and then as you unfold them into a local church, teaching them all things whatsoever Christ has instructed his men. And so we're not just looking like the Jesus movie. How many millions of people have professed to make decisions after the Jesus movie? Or was it touted, there was the passion of the Christ touted in Louisiana like it was in Georgia? It's the greatest thing since first century revival. And did the passion of the Christ change Louisiana for the better? I haven't heard that millennium's come here. It hasn't come to Georgia. And all kinds of decisions, but no enduring fruit. The history of Protestant evangelism and missionary work in the last 175 years has been terrible because of the influence of Charles Finney and his followers who said that, you know, evangelism is just a matter of doing the right things at the right time. Any, you can make anybody saved. Anybody can be saved if they will. It's the right use of the appropriate means. When asked why none of his seven children were believers, he had nothing to say. And his right-hand man, Asa Mahan, at the end of their lives, discussing their earlier ministry in upstate New York that had been so miraculous at the time, he said, none of our people have stuck. It's the burned-over district. It's a spiritual wasteland. You can get people to make decisions, and then you've inoculated them, and they think they've got Christianity, and they don't. We're to make disciples, not look for decisions. Let me give you one quick illustration. Ted Turner, Turner Broadcasting, got in trouble a few years ago because a number of his workers went to his church during lunch hour and came home with ashes on their forehead during Ash Wednesday, and he berated them in the office, and then he berated them on some interview, and of course that was bit bad PR, so he was told to recant. He said, I'm sorry for telling them they were stupid. And, and um, the Sunday paper ran a long article on Ted Turner. His father had committed suicide when he was a young man growing up in South Carolina. So they shipped him off to a military boarding school in Georgia, I guess what, to recover? And at the military boarding school, they had chapel every day, and they'd come forward and you become a Christian. He went forward six times. Six times. He even went forward a seventh time for missionary work. And it said in the newspaper article, nothing changed. My life didn't change. Nothing changed. These people are a bunch of idiots that they think this really works. Because I tried it seven times and it doesn't work. He thought he checked out Christianity and he felt sorry for the fools who bought it, not knowing that he had never really been uh, given biblical Christianity, and so he was very cynical. I don't blame him. I pray for Ted Turner. We don't want just decisions. We want disciples. Number six, churches send out missionary church planters who were self-consciously reliant upon the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the saints. It's been a privilege to get to know Alan some. I'm so discerning and working with young men that his brother, Aaron, calls me up one day. I just pick up the phone, hello, hello, is it Beardmore? I go, oh, hey, and we start talking, and we're into the conversation. I go, I don't remember anything you're talking about. I'm thinking to myself, and he's telling me stuff we've talked about and done. I'm thinking, gosh, I was just saw him a couple weeks ago, and none of this happened, and I'm losing my mind. I mean, I was thinking, I'm going crazy. And he has the same laugh as Alan does. It's spooky. He has the same laugh. His voice is the same. It's just spooky. And after about 10 minutes ago, wait a minute. <laughs> You're not Alan. You're Aaron. He goes, well, who'd you think I was? I go, oh. <laughs> but I am encouraged that Alan is a man who knows the priority of being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit and relying upon the prayers of the saints. And it's not an either-or category. Where the book of Acts, interestingly, if you study the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, Paul almost always, with one exception, talks about the Holy Spirit for, for holiness. With one exception, in 1 Corinthians 2, he talks about the Holy Spirit for ministry. But every other example is the Holy Spirit for holiness, for Christ-like character. The Spirit makes Christ real in you. But when Luke writes his material, and then Luke and Acts, almost always the Holy Spirit is for power, for God's people to speak with power. It's a weird division, but that's the way they've chosen to do it. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, etc., etc. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, Peter and the eleven stand up at Pentecost, 
And those who had been afraid and hid in the dark suddenly were standing up and said, You kill the Messiah. You kill God's man. What are you going to do about it? They had been filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches boldly in the power of the Spirit when arrested by the Jewish leadership. At the end of chapter 4, the believers are praying that the Holy Spirit would fill them so they wouldn't get scared and stop witnessing. And it says the room where they prayed, the, the rushing wind came in, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they preached the word with boldness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, When I came to you, I didn't come in great speech, and I didn't come trying to wow you with my rhetoric. I came in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, just trusting in preaching Christ, not being uh, philosophical or trying to communicate in some highfalutin way. I wanted my ministry to depend upon the power of the Spirit working in your lives. But here, but years later, it I was listening to Ron Dunn, and Ron Dunn was expressing how sometimes we divide things that God connects. And he had gone through a horrible time, and he had 10 years of the blackest depression. His firstborn son, named after him, committed suicide. You come home from a trip, the elders meet you at the airport, you can't go home. Ronnie's committed suicide. He had gone off the rails at age 15, had been bonkers for two years. They discovered that he was bipolar, got him on lithium, and he went back to being sweet Ronnie and was the same kid that had been in their house his whole life. In fact, he did so well that as a present to himself on Thanksgiving Day, he took himself off his meds and killed himself in his bedroom that day. He said, that was the last good day I had for 10 years. And you know what my occupation is? I'm a conference speaker. How do you show up, let alone speak about the Word of God, when you're dragging so badly? And he just read this from 2 Corinthians, and I confess I hadn't really seen this before, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For we don't want you, do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. Paul says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that, that we despaired of even life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, But that was to make us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I can't do this. I can't make myself make it. Well, God raises the dead, and you're still functioning, aren't you? He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. On him we've set our hope. Then he goes on to say, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. God will be more glorified when you pray for me and you hear about how God's answering your prayer. That encourages you, so I want you to pray for me. I'm trusting God, but I need you to pray for me. That's biblical. We pray they'll be filled with the Spirit, and we pray that we will pray for them. And Ron Dunn says, I need people to pray for me. He said, people prayed me through 10 years of the hardest time of my life. In Colossians 4, 2, verses 2 and 4, he says the same thing. The ministers in the New Testament relied upon the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the saints to help them to do what they did and to see what they were accomplishing. It's not either or, it's both and. Finally, number seven, we're out here at 1030? Okay. Uh, these sending churches sent out men who themselves knew that they were not rock stars and demigods, but simply sinful creatures saved by the grace of Almighty God and entrusted by their Savior with the gospel and filled with God the Holy Spirit to preach it. In Acts 14, I can remember the first time I read this passage, Paul and Barnabas are preaching, I believe, at Lystra or in Derby, and the people were wowed by Paul's miracle and his preaching, and they started chanting and this guy's Zeus, and these are this guy's Hermes. He's the, he's the chief god, and here's his spokesman. And they were carrying him around. It was like being thrown into a mosh pit at a big rock concert. And Paul tears his robes. I'm a man just like you. For God's sake, don't treat me as somebody special. I'm not a god. I'm a man like you. I do not want the glory to be taken from God. Do not call me some kind of Zeus or a rock star. But... If there are celebrity preachers, there are celebrity missionaries. There are celebrity Christians who, you know, 
you tell me I'm great enough and you can help me carry my head out of the room. I mean, we get prideful really fast. Paul would go on to say, I don't, didn't deserve to become an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the chief of sinners. At the end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners. Having seen my own heart, I can't imagine there's anybody more depraved than I am. I am no rock star. I am the chief of sinners. What has grieved me over the years is to see men who, though they may have started out as humble and meek men, they began to read their own press clippings. We want to be able to say with Paul, I am who I am by the grace of God, and his grace to me was not in vain. Pray that our missionary church planners would start out humble and stay that way. And finally, some applications to continue. Four ways sending churches can better work at their calling. First of all, pray. Pray, 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 pray. Pray that God would raise up faithful men to become missionaries. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And the things that you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, I want you to entrust these things to faithful men who in turn will pass them on to others also. Four generations. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. I've entrusted the gospel to you. I've trained you. I've equipped you. I've commended you to God. Now I want you to find men to pour your life into two. And they in turn will look for faithful men. God will fill these men with his spirit and pray that they'll see their gifts and pray that the local church will begin to use them to sharpen their gifts and to be um, effective in the local church. Pray for God to use these men in evangelizing and teaching while they're still in their home culture. Pray for God to open doors for them for effective ministry. Pastors can pray for mission work and the missionaries from the pulpit and the prayer meetings. Have a missionary prayer list and have it available at the prayer meetings. And I saw your, you have a nice long list of people to pray for and missionaries and, and, and keep it up. And the missionary prayer focus, pray, pray, pray. Pastors, pray for men's need of the gospel from the pulpit and the prayer meetings. Now, I know this church and I know your pastor has a heart for the saints and a heart for the lost. And as Walt Chantry said about your dear pastor, he said, I can preach and I can cry, but I can't do both. But Fred Malone can. And he was talking about Fred expressing his heart. You know, one of, the, one of my heroes is George Whitfield. And George Whitfield would go to the mines when guys were getting out of the mines at 5 o'clock in the morning at the, when the shift changed. And they come out of working in the mines. Have you ever seen them? It's like a reverse raccoon. Instead of your eyes being black, your eyes are white because you took the goggles off. But your face is black with silt. It's up in your nose. It's in your ears. It's everywhere. And they come out. It would disgorge these... They would disgorge these men out, and Whitfield would be there preaching it to them. And they would stand there, or they'd act like they couldn't care, or someone would mock them. And he kept on preaching, and he would start crying. And they would mock him, and he goes, Why are you mocking me? You don't have enough sense to cry for yourself, and you're going to hell. Can I cry for you, since you don't have enough sense to cry for yourself, and you're going to hell and don't even realize it? Oh, man, I'd be blown away if somebody spoke straight like that to me. And when you show that you're, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, my greatest hero, said, my great regret is I couldn't show my feelings like George Whitfield could. He preached eloquently, but he showed you his heart. I care that you're damned and you're going to hell if you don't have a Savior. I, I care that you're clueless and you go to work like it's the only thing in the world. I care that you're lost without God, without hope, and in the world. Pray that God would give each of the pastors in this room a compassion that when they preach for the lost, we all feel it. And not just the lost here, but across the street and across the continent. Pray for your missionary to be delivered from the evil one. I'm not a charismatic. When in doubt, I don't cast it out. I'm not looking for a demon behind every bush. But I think a lot of evangelicals and even some, especially some Reformed people, are naive about spiritual warfare. What are we taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer? And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. There's a definite article, not just from evil, like the King James said, but it's a definite article, from the evil one. Do you think, do you think that Jesus was teasing or telling a joke when he says, the strong man keeps his goods in peace Unless someone stronger comes by and takes them away. 
You think that the devil who has much of Australia in his grip wants some young brash missionary and his wife and little kids over there chirping the gospel? I don't think so. And so what? He's going to keep his goods in peace unless someone stronger comes and takes his goods from him, takes captivity captive. And we need to pray that God the Holy Spirit would protect this family. First, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1-3, he says, pray for me. Pray that we would, I would be kept from the evil one, Paul says. We're not, this, is, this is not a kid's game. This is not just fun and games. I played sports. I played sports where I got hurt. I used to tell people when I played football, I even wore a helmet. But it's nothing like the injuries that you receive in spiritual warfare. I have friends who started out in the ministry with me who've gone insane. I've had friends who were in the ministry with me who lost everything. They lost their wives. They lost their kids. They lost their health. And I view them not as bad men, but as casualties of war. It can be hellish out there. Do you ever talk to a vet with PTSD and some of the horrors he saw that nobody should ever have to see? And you see that in the ministry, and you, you learn more about dirt than the policeman and the vice squad learns? And you're supposed to keep yourself clean, and you're supposed to keep yourself sane? It could be very scary out there. Pray for your missionaries to be delivered from the evil one. And pray for your missionary's wife and all missionary wives and pastor's wives. I had a missionary in my home that he spoke at our church and over dinner, the wife confided, we started talking and they'd come home. They'd been in the Philippines and they'd come home and I, as I asked some questions that she'd had a nervous breakdown. Well, tell me what, what happened. Well, I had a baby, and in some places in the world, when you have natural childbirth, you have real natural childbirth. That went okay. They're in a particularly hot place in the Philippines where the only time you cooled off was while you were standing in a cold shower. As soon as you came out, you got out, you went back to sweating again. And she said, I'm not from a background where I'm perspiring all the day, all day long, 23 hours a day, except when I'm standing in a cold shower. And my baby has colic and doesn't sleep for seven or eight months. I didn't get a good night's sleep for seven or eight months, and sleep deprivation made me go over the edge, and I just broke down. I couldn't take it. And so my husband had to come back from the mission field, and she started crying. And I looked at him. I couldn't tell if he was embarrassed or if he was compassionate, but they did have to come down, come back because she broke down. The great Charles Hodge of Princeton, his son, Archibald Alexander Hodge, was a minister missionary to Islamabad, uh, Pakistan, and his wife came down with a tropical disease, and after four years, they had to come back. Now, I'm sure he didn't blame his wife for getting sick. Why would you get sick? But do you think the devil ever whispers things like that in wives' ears? I told this woman who had the nervous breakdown, I said, I went through sleep deprivation for 18 months, and I cracked, and I was looking over the abyss into my own insanity, and I said, it's a terrible thing when you can't make yourself well, you can't get a good night's sleep to make your fix yourself you can't do anything, and you're not in control. I said, I understand exactly how you felt. She goes, really? And I said, you didn't plan to do it. You didn't plan for your baby to be sick. You didn't plan to live in this super harsh culture. The Lord just had you there, and you didn't make it. But it, it's not sin. You're not disobedient. And she thought I was the world's greatest guy. And I'm still not sure what her husband thought when he left. Like, if was he blaming her? Did he think she never should have brought it up? But I might have been the first person who said, you know, you weren't wrong to just not be able to take it. We can't all every, take everything the same way. I know another man who took his wife to a culture, and he told me the only thing that limited his ministry in that culture was the fact that there were 24 hours in a day. I could minister all the time and not do any apologetics. The people in this part of Africa are so open. I could just preach the gospel and follow up, preach the gospel and follow up all the time continuously. And he left his wife back in the compound, who didn't learn the local language, didn't know the local language, didn't have electricity, did the clothes, and did the wash in the bathtub. You could take a shower once a week. You could flush the urinal once a day. And had two kids in the mission field, had two already. And she had a breakdown after 12 years and had to come back. And they learned some hard lessons. They went into counseling. 
He was, he was so into the ministry that, I'll pray for you, dear, I'm going out to win the people of Nigeria. And she couldn't take it. She was pushed way beyond her limits. Now, I'm not accusing or suggesting that we need to give Alan and Katie the fishy eye, like, <laughs> or anybody for that matter. But we can all be insensitive. We can all be more gung-ho. We can all be unrealistic. And if something should happen, it's not sin to be a weak human being who can't take everything. If, you know, your pastor Fred and his wife, they can tell you stories of people that they know and love who aren't where they once were because they just broke down under the spiritual strain. They broke down in what they were trying to do for Christ. And we need to uphold them, and especially wives, because if mama ain't happy, <laughs> and if mama's struggling, then just, you know, my wife had three operations in three years, and I thought of each of them as a spiritual attack because of the timing and what happened and trying to get to me. When I became the pastor, I sat my kids down and said, kids, do you know what a bully is? Oh, yeah, Dad, we know. I had a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. Well, I'm about to become the pastor of this church, and the devil is such a bully that he'd go after you to influence me. And they couldn't believe that the devil, who they had some vague knowledge of, would try to do something to harm or affect them to influence me. For example, my kids came down with fevers and sicknesses on Sundays for many weeks in a row. And being really shrewd after about the 30th week of, hey, wait a minute, I can figure this out. Let's pray. And you know what? My kids still got sick, but they never got sick on the weekends ever again. But if, if the kids are sick, mom has, mom has to stay home. Mom has to stay home and she can't participate, and that takes her out of the picture. So being, you know, praying for your missionaries, praying for their wives, praying for their kids. Educate. Showing slides, movie clips of nations and people groups. Using Operation World, that big fat book with every country in the world and what's going on spiritually there. Get a globe. And I suggest for Sunday school classes or groups, is challenge the family. Okay, we want you to find a country. We want you to point it out on the globe to us next week. And we want you to give a presentation of what's going on there spiritually and how we need to be praying for that country. That family will never forget the study they did of that country in that week and give everybody a copy of Operation World. Have an annual missions conference and have missionaries present. Sing missionary hymns about the extension of Christ's kingdom. Highlight faithful and sometimes famous missionaries of the past. Have a book table and have great missions books available. Give, to your, give your best men what you're doing. Give your buddies liberally to the extension of the gospel. Do you have a set percentage goal of what you'd like to give of the church's money to missions this year? Like if you have, say, an a annual budget of $450,000, what percentage of that would you like to see go to missions? Give the gospel from the pulpit regularly and fervently. A heart for evangelism and a heart for missions is caught before it's taught, really. Martin Lloyd-Jones had many people go out from his church to become missionaries because he so fervently preached the gospel and the importance of Christ and the importance of salvation that people caught a vision for the lost world and caught the need for missionaries. And he didn't... He didn't ring the changes all the time on missionaries. He just preached the gospel and the power of the Spirit. Give your pastor and his wife or your elders and some money and send them to visit your missionaries. One of the mistakes our association, I believe, met was some pastors don't like to travel for whatever reason. They don't like to be out of their pulpit. They don't like to sleep in strange beds. I get a cold when I sleep, get in airplanes and all these weird things that some men don't like to travel, so they don't. Well, we'll send the coordinator, and he'll go over there, and so some missionaries are never visited by their home church. And the third, person, third party reports on what he saw and what happened. And I think that makes for a distortion. The missionary doesn't really see his home church involved. He doesn't see the elders. They don't see what he's really doing. They don't see how his marriage is doing. And 
um, how his child rearing is doing. They don't see how his, how his mission is doing. Um, you need to send your people. And so Fred and Debbie, you need to start getting your tickets. And um, Mitch you know, and Sherry you know, need to start getting your tickets to go to Western Australia. Give your missionary a, a free trip to a conference somewhere where he, he probably won't have a lot of discretionary income on the field and send him to a conference, a Banner of Truth conference in Australia, perhaps, something like that. Number four, and I'm done, communicate. As an encouragement, my message tomorrow is actually very short, so this makes up for it for being extra long. To communicate. Missionaries and their wives can become lonely, and particularly in the first couple of years is because you're looking to see converts, and you don't know for a while yet if it's that these converts are going to last. And so you're looking for, as Anne of Green Gables would say, what, a bosom friend? And the trouble is, some of these people just came out of the world three weeks ago, and you're hoping they make it, but you can't share the deep things of your heart quite with them yet because they're not there. So the deal is, where are you going to look for, for friends? Well, you're not going to have friends, close friends other than each other for a while. So... Between scarce friends and culture shock, you can feel lonely. And so, hey, who used to know them pretty well? Send them letters, send them emails, um, send them phone calls. And don't ask them, pepper with them with questions. One thing is missionaries all say, I don't want to be peppered with 30 questions because then it takes me four hours to answer them and I'm exhausted and talking to you wasn't very helpful. So talk about what's going on in your life. Talk about what's going on in the church, in the States, something they would care about. Express your love and a concern for them. Tell them some verses that you're praying for them. Faithful phone calls and emails from the pastor and the people in the church who were truly their friends before they left will mean so much to them. And remembering details from one phone call to the next and not just mindlessly repeating stock questions every time you call them is encouraging. This church is a very rare church in the history of the United States. Very few churches ever send out a missionary. A tiny fraction of churches ever have a missionary go out. And the Lord has called a man from your midst, and it's a great privilege. We want to support this couple. We want to see them prosper in the Lord and in their spiritual lives and in their ministry. And we want them to live happily ever after with their precious children, as is your pastor's prayer for each of you. May the Spirit of God make it so in this church and in the lives of this family. Let's pray. Father, there was some ramble to my address, and I apologize. I pray that you would take the good out of what I stammered and bring it home to all of us this evening. What a holy privilege to go to a country where they don't have to learn another language, maybe a different tonation and accent, but no new language, and they don't have to learn all kinds of weird cultural things, but they will have culture shock. They will have strangers to meet and befriend and hope that none of the strangers will betray them, hoping that spiritual warfare will not get too rough, hope that the children stay healthy, Lord, we entrust this precious couple into your hands, and we entrust the church into your hands, for only you can make them a sensitive, caring, tender church, and only you can make them loved and strong missionaries on the field. I pray that the relationship between this sending church and this missionary family would be a precious one that both sides would speak of as long as it the kingdom is still coming. Would you continue to bless the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Spirit in this church? We pray in Jesus' name alone. Amen.